digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. Good afternoon. My guests today are Freedom Gerardo and Liz Guerra, owners of Cimarron Farmstead near Danbury, Connecticut. They have been community and union organizers, and they are BIPOC New Yorkers from the Bronx turned homesteaders, hemp farmers, beekeepers, and hosts of the Blue Dream Radio podcast. Liz is also a full-spectrum doula birth worker. So welcome, guys. Hey. Thank you so much. That was a great introduction. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Kevin. Great. So I'll start off with uh, this. Uh, where, where'd you get the name Cimarron? So Cimarron, the, the actual, so we, we uh, it's a play on words. So that word Cimarron is a translated word from Spanish. It was a term that uh, colonizers used uh, to refer to runaway slaves and areas where runaway slaves would, would live. And uh, so uh, we we find ourselves we're running away from capitalism. We're running away from some of these institutions and colonialism, and we found our way to this farm. And so Cimarron is spelled C-I-M-A-R-R-O-N, but we wanted to also incorporate our family, which this is a farmstead, and so we added uh, S-E-A like the C which are the initials of our kids' names, the first letters of, their, of our kids' names. So oh, Cimarron, very. it's just, you know, family and, you know, just uh, liberation. Very cool. So um, when you say farmstead, what makes that different from, say, a farm or, or anything else? It makes a difference because a farmstead, you are feeding yourself first. You are cultivating to be able to feed your family. And a regular farm is just a corporation, not all of them, but a lot of them that sell food for mass production or grow food for mass production. We grow it um, here for ourselves first, and then we grow for the community. I get it. So what is a BIPOC farmer? So BIPOC is a term that has, I guess, come into to FAD now stands for Black Indigenous Person of Color or People of Color. And it's it's a catch-all term, figuring out a way in which we're not uh, referring to folks who are non-white as minorities, but instead looking at it from the lens of a power, of a power lens, right? Where us as a community are strong, we're powerful, we're organizing, we're mobilizing. Uh, and uh, for us, it's it's important that we identify ourselves uh, as that, as our farm, as farmers, as BIPOC farmers. That we, that folks know that you know we're here. We're building communities. We're building networks of BIPOC farmers throughout the state and throughout the area, throughout the tri-state area as well. And and BIPOC is for me it means more to to add to what Liz is saying, like the community that we are building. So we need to build that community that look like us. So a lot of our young people think that. Uh, Farmers are white men with plaid living in Iowa. So that we want to make sure that they understand that farmers look like them. Representation means everything. So that's one of the reasons why backpack farmers is a term that needs to be used to identify those people that's doing the work that are not being recognized. Why is that so important to you? Is it, is it to 
is there a big movement for people like say out of the let's just use the Bronx as an example to move back out and go to the land and grow their own food? But there's a couple of things. People who are doing this work because it's such a small percentage. If you look at national statistics of who are folks who own land, who are folks who work the land, you know, historically. Uh, our ancestors, whether they're there were Africans, slaves from Africa or indigenous folks from uh, the Americas, we were all farmers, right? And that was a lot of stuff that unfortunately through colonialism was beaten out of us and, and we forgot about. And so this is our way of reclaiming that, reclaiming that, that relationship that we have to the land, but also mending a lot of those wounds, generational wounds that have been passed down. A lot of people feel really uncomfortable uh, with the idea of, of even farming. So yes, I, I want to say that we are part of a movement. More and more people post-pandemic or in this pandemic period have realized that food sovereignty is essential and we need to be in charge of our own food systems. And, and to add to that, BIPOC is just a term, you know, and it's a new term, something new that came out like, what, two, three years ago, maybe? We are always trying to identify the work that people have been doing. So Black and brown people and indigenous people have been farming in this country for a long time, and we have been forgotten. We have been stripped from the land uh, that we have cultivated for generations, and that ancestral knowledge has been wiped out. So for us, it's more of identifying those issues, elevating the minds of our young people, because we work with youth as well. So they can understand that farming is part of life and it's part of um, your symbiotic relationship with the earth. And we need to start putting our hands back to the earth. And that's the point of us being farmers is to be able to educate our communities around this, um, this concept of building our relationship back to the earth. So you came out of the Bronx and you came up to someplace up near Danbury, Connecticut, and you you bought the land and so you categorized it as decolonizing the land. Do you want to explain what happened, how you got the land, how much you got? All you know, just give a, a, a short story about your your farmstead. For sure. So we came from New York City. I'm originally from Queens. I was born and raised in Queens and moved to Manhattan and. Freedom was living in the South Bronx, and that's how we got our start. We got our start doing just real simple food composting, which Freedom I hate hated. <laughs> but you know, ten years later, it's that same compost that we use on our land that we started off on our fire escape in New York City. So when we came to Connecticut, we knew that it was important that we continue to grow. There was something deep inside that was really wanting to come out, that was really interested in in reconnecting to the land. And we recognize that the land that we're in right now, uh, the area that we're in right now is formerly, it's stolen Pagasset land. So we wanna elevate the voices of those uh, native folks who at one point or another in history used to use this land as a place to hunt and no longer have that ability, no longer are these, these their lands. And so as earth stewards, we wanna ensure that the work that we do here on this land, that you know we, we purchased it um, but it's frankly not not ours, right? And if you're looking at it from the lens of indigenous people, no one owns anything. The earth owns herself. And so we want to be able to steward the land, be good stewards, be, be folks who don't exploit the land, but instead work, as Freedom said, and have the symbiotic relationship with the land, where we work with the land, we listen to her, we, we grow in areas where she's okay with, leave some areas 
um, untouched. untouched because we don't have to um, exploit every single part for uh, for profit, but instead uh, to have that relationship and to know that the land is there for us. And as long as we care for her, she'll care for us. And also decolonizing the term farm, farmer, farm, farmer, and what that looks like. So for us, it's not just the land, it's just the whole concept of owning land and farming and who should be farming, who should be making money out of this or making revenue, generational wealth, passing down generational wealth. Because a lot of farmers, Black farmers and brown farmers in, in the United States throughout history, their land have been stripped out of their hands through bad dealings with the USDA, um, all these different things that's happening, that has happened, that we have the history, we is there. Uh, so for us, it's decolonizing that. It's making sure that people know that it's a new way. Regenerative agriculture is necessary for our survival. And the pandemic has shown that we have to be self-sustainable. And that's part of the decolonization of farming is changing the state of mind of our own communities. Like for us, we are, we are seeing like the crazy people that came from the city over here to farm when you can go to a supermarket and just find everything you need. You don't need to grow it yourself. That narrative, we need to change it. We need to make sure that people know that the food don't start at the supermarket. There's a lot of hands that touch it before you get to buy it and put it on your plate. And the last point about that is we're, we're talking about 500 years of colonialism. Mm -hmm. uh, and so both Freedom and my family, and he's directly uh, come from lands that were colonized by the Spanish over 500 years ago. So we know that we, we cannot make huge, these tremendous changes and change what has been embedded in us for generations, but we know that we can stop right now. And that's frankly, when we think about decolonizing is how do we stop the breaks and make a change to what has been embedded into us mm -hmm. for generations and reclaim that and reclaim who we are and our identities. Yeah, you and I are plowing, so to speak, the same land. You know, I used to have my show talk to politicians and pundits and, you know, activists, and I felt kind of helpless, like there wasn't much getting done there. So I started talking to farmers and gardeners and liked it a whole much better talking to <laughs> gentle people who are, you know, taking care of the planet and growing their own food and everything. So, and my audience has gotten used to that, and I think they like it mm -hmm. too. So, the, and we're, you know, my saying is like, you know, let's, you know, make the earth a better place one one garden at a time you know so i'm getting the sense that you guys had the same kind of feeling when you left the bronx to come up up to danbury absolutely, absolutely. And, and don't get me wrong if we would have had some land or some space in the bronx to grow uh we would have we would have stayed in the bronx like right now we have we have a nonprofit in the south bronx that work um around food insecurity in the south bronx and we are building a campaign around taking over empty lots so we can turn them into urban farms so young people can learn how to grow food from seed to seed. And when I say seed to seed, a lot of people think that seed to table mean that's the end of the plant. But when you say seed to seed, you're giving a regenerative thought to the plant because you can harvest the seed and, and repurpose that plant and grow it again. So for us, it's teaching that um, to our young people. And that's some of the things that we are doing right now. We don't just talk about it. We actually doing the work in, in the South Bronx. So you, you have like three and a half acres up there in Danbury? Yeah. yeah. You, you, you purchased that and you're working at it. Is there a farm, a house, farmhouse on the land or you live somewhere else and you come in and grow there? 
No. So we, we live on the farm. There's a farmstead. So, so we live on the farm. We have a home, our house is on the farm on, on, on the 3.1 acres right now we're farming on about a quarter of an acre. Uh, our plan, we have a, a pretty aggressive three-year plan where uh, our plan is to, to expand our farm to uh, three quarters of an acre instead of the quarter acre that we're working on right now. This year, we're going to extend that. Our, our land is really slopey and it was uh, not cared for for, for some time. A long time. And so we're really just uh, taking our time to, to rebuild that, figure out what, what, what's going on, what areas we should grow on, which areas we keep wild. Um, we also have an apiary. We have, some, we have some, some bees. And so we know that lots of these wild flowers that are growing, there's no point in, in ripping them down if local pollinators really, really need them in order to survive. Right. Yeah, well, my audience would want, want to know, uh, what are you doing to rebuild the soil? I mean, what do you, what, what's some of the things that you've uh, got planned? Oh, my goodness, so mm. much. So we planted this year, we planted a, a winter crop. rye. We, cover, we planted a cover crop because our soil is very, is clay. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to break the clay uh, with, with the uh, cover crop. And the winter ride is perfect for that because the root grows six inches down to the ground and it breaks that clay up and it creates that, you know, that black soil that we really want to see. And we also use in hemp. The hemp plant um, uh, sequesters carbon back to the soil. Uh, so we regenerating that soil back with carbon. Again, the, the root of the hemp plant goes six feet um, deep into the soil and breaks the, that soil and regenerates that soil. So we're doing that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, soil amendments, composting. Uh, composting, looking at mugwort, which I know everyone loves to talk about how much they hate. For us, for our own knowledge, we, we've learned so much about mugwort and to not chop it down and, and curse at it, but instead to honor it. Um, and ancestrally, you know, a lot of uh, indigenous folks used and continue. There's a lot of people who do continue to use mm -hmm. mugwort. Women use it in particular for reproductive, for their own reproductive health. Folks use it uh, nowadays for, you know, yoni steams and for teas and to do some, some sage smudges. And so what we've done with, with our mugwort is uh, try to grow it right before the seed opens up and then just chop that down and let that help us with erosion. Again, we're on um, really slopey land. So last year when the, the rains were coming down um, heavy, um, the areas in which we cut down the mugwort and it wasn't, it wasn't growing anymore because it, it, uh, we stunted the growth the land didn't shift, right? The, the, our, our crops didn't erode and they didn't go down the hill the way that we've seen a, a lot of folks' uh, land move. And where we just have this, this really interesting relationship with, with mugwort and with the different weeds that exist on the land. And we know that they, they, they serve a purpose and we continue to do that. On top of that, our compost, we are act, actively using our compost, setting up Google culture, um, around um, our, around the land. So we have a bunch of wood, you know, that just can, it, it's, it's the cycle, right? So how can we take, you know, fall, fallen trees and repurpose them and use them on the land as well? So Hugo culture to give a, a little ex explanation about it, you, you build a dish, you throw wood that's e eroding, that's, um, and you put it in there with your compost, you, you put, you build a mountain of soil on top of it and you water it. And then that, that wood will suck it as a sponge. So if there's a, a drought, 
the, the wood will release that water up and you will have a fertile place to grow food uh, when in, in drought season. Very good. It sounds like you guys know what you're up to, you know, and you got some real interesting ways of going about it. Um, but, you know, you did pick an awful tough profession here, you know, I mean, <laughs> I know farmers work, work, farmers <laughs> work hard and my, a lot of disappointment. That, mm -hmm. What's the biggest difference between like growing on your uh, fire escape and then coming up there? What, what did you run into that you found was, let's say, what's the oh, best wow. thing and what's the worst thing? Big old boulders of rocks. rocks the... deer. deer. So our first, our first grow of 250 hemp plants got completely demolished by deer in literally one sitting one oh one yeah morning. one night yeah and you one... put up a fence they can levitate yes <laughs> so now we learned we were we are uh this this uh, season putting up a, a hoop house and a bunch of deer fencing we have a, a friend who we gave uh permission to to do some deer hunting with with bow and arrow very good very um, good but it's 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 tough. I mean, you know, on some there's sometimes, especially in the summer, in the dead heat of summer, when you're doing this inside, you know, in your home in New York City, on off of your, it's easy, right? I'm gonna water my little plant and then I forget about it. When you have like a full blown farm mm -hmm. that needs your attention, twenty four seven. Um, it's it, it's it just it takes time, but it's also you know it it changes. So we have to wake up super early in the summertime. <laughs> Four or five yeah. o'clock in the morning before the sun before comes it gets out hot and <laughs> us. Um, you know, but it's also I feel we have we have young children and so our farmstead has become super multi-generational. So our parents or our our kids' grandparents, they come, they help out, they bring their own knowledge from our home countries. And so um, you know, they are they talk about some of the stuff that they did. Um, with little flowers that they have in front of their front lawns, but being able to bring that knowledge here, they're them being super like sustainable and being able to be really scrappy has been absolutely amazing. So for me, it's like the, the flip, the, the ability for us to really create a community on the farm of people, you know, young people, old folks, uh, middle-aged people, whomever, if they just want to learn, uh, this has become the place where they're able to do that. So we get a lot of support, but you know, the times where we don't have help, you know, it can be really, really challenging. What, you, what else are you growing besides hemp? Uh, what vegetables and things have you leaned oh into? Like garlic, we got garlic. Right we have garlic that we're really, really excited about. Uh, we have about uh, ten different types of tomatoes that we're growing, uh, uh, cucumbers. Uh, Three letters. different types of lettuce, three different types of basil, different types of, of mint. We have uh, lots of um, herbs, so like thyme. We were growing eggplants and um, potatoes, carrots, potatoes, carrots, onions, which were really, really fun. Pumpkins, we ended up, ended up having a bunch of volunteer seeds. Uh, so we ended up growing pumpkins without even knowing uh, the, the seeds. Just uh, we threw the, the, a pump, the pumpkin like in the middle of, of November of 2020, just out into the field and we completely forgot about it. And then come um, May or June, uh, we just start, saw, saw, saw it growing. Uh, so we just thought it was pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. Cool. Yeah. Uh, cut flowers. Um, so sunflowers I've become a little obsessed with <laughs> and tulips. Um, Let's see what else. What else do we, we eat so much uh, on yeah. the land. Are you, are you selling? Are you selling any of it? Oh, you got the honey, we are. right? So we, we were selling it. Uh, Kent Falls uh, Brewery has their, Shout out. 
<laughs> up in uh, Kent. They uh, they have um, like a, like a little farmers market on Thursdays in the summertime, and so we would sell like all of our all of our stuff up there. Um, this time around, this year, we're like I said, we were we're going to be expanding our operation significantly, and so our hope is that we'll be able to sell some of our stuff at the Danbury Farmers Market. We have some friends over in North Salem who are about to open up a farmer's market, I believe in Mount Kisco. So, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing what, what works for us. Um, we have a bunch of friends from the city who are just like, just set up a CSA. And mm-hmm. we're like, oh man. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's another ball game, but you know, you're, yes, you're young at this, you know, this is a young startup. So, you know, you have yeah. time, you have time. Yeah. And, and right now we had like some restaurants that actually inquire um, for us to uh, produce some vegetables for them, you know, a Mexican they're, restaurant. A, they're smart. Yeah, yeah. A barbecue restaurant, an um, Indian restaurant, and a, and a Japanese. Japanese restaurant have been, we've been talking to them to see if we can sell directly to them, Very locally cool. sourced food from, uh, you know, from uh, two crazy people from New York. <laughs> yeah. Well, these two crazy people from New York are Liz Guerra and uh, Freedom Gerardo. They're both uh, have a farmstead called Sea Maron up in uh, Danbury, and it's nice to have them here with me today. So let's let's talk uh, hemp. All right. So I'm I feel like I'm a little bit in a cult when I talk about hemp because I'm so he's like evangelizing yeah. about hemp. Like I'm hemp so can amazed. do everything. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's it can actually create some, uh, alleviate some of the climate issues that we are going through right now. How First so? of all, it sequesters carbon back to the soil. Um, you can use every part of the plant. You can use the root to make teas for insomnia. You can use the stock for, for hempcrete. Fabric. Fabric. I don't know if people know what hempcrete is. It's like concrete, but made out of hemp. So you take the, the inside of the of the stock of the of the hemp, you take the inside of that. It's called the herd, and then you mix that with lime and water, um, and you have insulation for housing that is is lasts longer than that pink. What's it called? The fiberglass. fiberglass yeah. um, the fiberglass um, insulations that they put in houses for insulation. You can use it for insulation. Um, you can use the leaves for clothing. Um, you can use the 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 bud. The bud uh, for CBD flour, for CBD oil. There's three different types. So you can have hemp for fiber, hemp for in- industrial hempcrete. Then you can have hemp for seeds. So if you harvest the seeds, you can. it's a superfood. So you see a lot of people eating hemp seeds now uh, because it's a superfood. So you can harvest that. You can also make some oils, like we said. So the plant does everything. So one fact is acre of hemp can generate because of the carbon that sequesters. Um, it can generate more oxygen than than an acre full of grown trees. Huh. So it's legal to grow here in Connecticut. Yes, it's federally legal since 2018. The Farm Bill uh, moved it from the Schedule One drug into uh, a, a federal commodity. commodity. Okay, so because it doesn't have a lot of THC in it, the three point three point one. I mean, 03 percent. So if it goes above 03 percent, it's considered THC, and if it goes below, if it's below 03 percent, it's CBD. I get it. And so, does somebody come by and check on you? Yes. So we have a license with the state. So we have to send samples when it's time to harvest. 
So we, we have to make sure that we comply with all the regulations and we don't go above that 0.3% because if we do, then we have to dispose of it. And that's something that we can do, you know? Right. And so it, is it sometime down the line, are you looking to grow marijuana or is that going to be sort of like controlled by the powers that be? So for us right now, we want to see how it plays out. Uh, we are in the cannabis industry. You mentioned before in our introduction, we have a podcast called Blue Dream Radio, the People's Cannabis um, Podcast. Uh, and we talk about cannabis equity. So for us right now, we want to see how it plays out in Connecticut because equity is not in the horizon. So we want to see, even though they, they built the, they created this build around the word equity for BIPAC um, communities that have been harmed by the war on drugs. I don't see that happening right now. So I want to take a, a, a sit back, you know, really look at what's happening in the industry and then make my decision. Uh, because right now I'm a medical patient and medical patients in the state of Connecticut can grow six plants in their house. Right. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, right now, I don't need no more than six plants. So I'm going to see how it plays out. We might apply for a license. We might sue Danbury. The reason why we say lawsuits when it comes to the cannabis industry is because right now, Danbury, every municipality can opt out of the program, of the cannabis program. Uh, and Danbury is an impact zone. Impact zone meaning that they have a zip code that people can fall under and be part of the equity program that the cannabis bill put in place. So if you're part of the equity program, you get a leg up to get into the cannabis industry. So um, right now, Danbury put a moratorium in, on cannabis for a year. So they don't want nobody growing. It's on their bylaws. They don't want nobody cultivating, have a dispensary. But the thing that they did was before the law passed, they allow one dispensary to open. So they can opt out of the program and still get the tax revenues from the industry because they allow acreage, a big corporation, in the United States, that's made, um, uh, MSO, that's a multi-state operator. I can call it like liquor store. They have um, uh, dispensaries all over the country and they allow that dispensary to open here. So they are entitled to the tax revenues. So and that's kind of uh, a violation of my civil rights. Right. And, and you talk about, I read uh, about cannabis justice because this is like big, you know, rich guys in suits coming in to mm -hmm. take over the industry. And, the, you know, people have been selling and buying and smoking marijuana for years. And some mm -hmm. of them are actually have cr criminal records and some of them are still mm -hmm. in jail for a possession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that ain't right. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah. Um, and, and another piece of it is that they made a, um, here in Connecticut, the state made a compact agreement with the tribal nations to, for them to be able to give a piece of the pie of what they sell to the state, but they have full autonomy of how they run their business um, because they are a sovereign state. I don't know if it was, you know, on purpose, but there's a tribal, there's a tribal um, a nation here in Connecticut um, that is state, state recognized, but not federal recognized that was left out out of the compact deal that they had made. So for us, it's like, you know, even on that part, you're not even doing right by the indigenous people that you stole the land from. Right. So you, you think this is going to get resolved or the big guys are going to win this? Oh, man. I, I mean, we hope it's going to get resolved. I mean, the big guys are, have money, right? They have mm -hmm. money, they have power, they have their lobbyists mm -hmm. here. And certainly, you know, there was 
the lobbyists were definitely in Hartford uh, the days, the weeks, the months before the legislation passed. Original legislation that was was literally, you could tell that was written by a lot of these multi-state operators, these large corporations. And we're talking about like billion dollar corporations who- Sure, cigarette really, companies probably. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And they see the benefit, right? They see that this is it just makes sense. They see next door in Massachusetts, how much they're able to, to gain in terms of profit. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we want to make sure that there, there are people here. There are people here who have been hurt, communities who have been hurt by this uh, by this big drug war that was created. And, you know, the, the big guys who are making the money made money off of them being, uh, being in, uh, incarcerated, incarcerated. Uh, made money off of them while they're incarcerated, making phone calls to their families, and now making money off of, of them if they get to, to work for them. Um, use their status as an equity applicant um, to steal um, their license, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, so it's really complicated. So yeah. what's what's uh, next for you in the hemp um, growing business? They're not gonna. They're not stopping you from doing that. They're no, just... no, not at all. I, I think there's there's a few things, but we're really interested in hempcrete. There's uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely a, a, a rising interest in in hempcrete. Um, in the United States right now, there's very, very small number of pro- uh, producers throughout the country. Processors. Uh, processors. And for the most part, folks are getting their stuff from overseas, if not from Canada. And so there is definitely a huge niche uh, for this. And more and more people as, you know, we're looking at supply chain issues. If they're able to get uh, hempcrete right here from Connecticut, uh, that for us would be a huge win for us to be able to, to be the, the folks who produce a hempcrete on a large scale for folks on, on the East Coast. And we also thinking about like, you know, biofuel, because you can use the, the seed oil um, of the hemp for biofuel. Um, and also like there's a lot of car companies right now that are using like BMW that are using hemp to build cars, like a full blown hemp car that takes the, um, um, hemp oil, uh, um, fuel, hemp fuel. So they they doing amazing things with hemp right now. So we are very excited for the future of hemp and how we fit in into it. Oh, good luck with that. So this uh, whole program is part of Black History Month. I was wondering if I could get you to comment about what 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 how important that is to you. To you know, as um, some authors have written, you know, as he who writes the history, you know, owns it. You know, so what do you think about this whole thing with Black History Month and and the, you know some of the attacks that have been going on across the United States against the you know books and the uh, you know rewriting history and things like that? Do you have any something you want to share with us? So there's lots for for me to consider, for both of us to consider. When we first moved to the state, it was something actually that was pretty glaring to me with our our eldest daughter. There was no Black history celebration in her school, in her school district. We grew up in New York City, and so it was just the norm. We knew there was Black History Month in February, Women's History Month in in March, uh, Latino History Month in September uh, slash October. And so there wasn't that those celebrations. And I feel like it really puts our, our kids, our young people at a disadvantage. Our kids need to know that their histories don't start with slavery. Mm-hmm. Their histories start way further back and they're really powerful histories. So for, for me, Black History Month is shouldn't be the only month in which we acknowledge uh, really the, the impact that uh, African-Americans and Black folks have had on, on this country but really just give them their roses, give people their roses, give black people their roses now they're alive. 
and they can hear it. So let, let us learn about the different ways in which African-Americans and Black people have made huge impacts in the United States. And certainly we could talk about, you know, talk forever about their impacts in terms of, you know, farming and, and how they continue to impact farming in really amazing ways. So could you tell us, do you have a favorite story about in that regard? Tell us some history. Oh, I'm trying to think. Oh, I don't want to get the names mixed up. George Washington Carver and how he came up with the whole idea of these like, of like apple picking. <laughs> and people thought he was crazy that like he was going to have these, all these orchards of apples set up and people were going to pay him to, to pick it. But he was like a, like a trailblazer. He did this and now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing. Everyone knows that, you know, apple pumpkin, pump, what is that? Apple picking season and pump, pumpkin spice latte, right? Like all of these things that have become a, a real, just part culturally as U.S. Americans that we do was something that was created by a gentleman in the South trying to figure out how we could maximize his land. Uh, and not, and while, while also not having the, the the person power in order to 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 be able to to do it, and created this 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 really amazing way for us to be able to uh, interact and enjoy and and you know pick apples and stuff. Uh, you know he he was the peanut guy, so I mean that's what I know <laughs> yeah. from him. He he came yeah. up with more ways to use peanuts, and there's a legume that sequesters carbon too. Though it's an mm -hmm. amazing amazing legume. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And sorry, and, and you, uh, Freedom? Uh, so for me, like, the question is what Black history means to me, right? Yep. Basically, so for me, it's just, you know, it's too short of a month, like uh, Liz said. For me, it's just making sure that our young people understand that it's, that it's better. There's something better out there, that there, there is a future that, that is holding us that we can see a future and the future is with farming. And for me, the story, like, and I will bring it back to the youth. My story will be, you know, the Black Panthers and the Black Panthers because they created the full breakfast, the free breakfast program. I mean, the free breakfast program fed hundreds of kids. All over the country. All Chicago, over the country, Oakland, Chicago, California, yeah. Oakland. Um, they were feeding people with this program and they don't get their roses because the United States took this program implemented it in, in public schools and acted like they made this happen. And it was the Black Panthers that set the example of how to do this. And they don't even get the homage that they deserve. They don't pay homage to them. And for us, um, uplifting those stories is important. And it's, that's not the only stories. And the Black Panthers is, are one of the biggest groups. But then you have the move. And people don't honor them. The move in Philadelphia, they got bombed. Um, on live television, they if, if you look at the history, if you go on Google and you search the MOVE organization, you can, in Philadelphia, they dropped a bomb on human beings. So for us, those stories need to be uplifted um, and people need to know this. Well, it's been nice having you here with me. We'll have to have you come back and tell us the progress as you get uh, further yes. to develop that land. You know, we've been Absolutely. speaking. And maybe to... you can come and check it out. Oh, I will definitely. I, I do that often. You know, I'm, I've been talking to Freedom Gerardo and uh, Liz Guerra, and uh, they're of the Sea Marin Farmstead up in Danbury, Connecticut. It's been great having you guys. Thanks for sharing. Yes, and follow us on Instagram, IG, Sea Marin Farmstead. S E A M. <laughs> A-R-R-O-N-F-A-R-M-S-T-E-A-D on Instagram. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt.
You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. Thank you.